I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, July 27th, 2011. That, that sounds like my voice. Yeah, that would be my voice. I, I'm <laughs> I feel about 80%. Uh, this morning was awful. <laughs> Major sinus headache along with his head cold. But oh man, I'm, I'm on the men's. I'm back ensconced in my... Captain's chair on the pirate ship. Oh, yeah. <sighs> Hopefully I won't get tired and have to take a nap. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Okay, so I, I'm like way behind. I, that, that's all there is to it. A week of vacation where the whole world went crazy, come back and I get sick and, oh, man. So it's like the middle of the week and I haven't chimed in on like anything. I, 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 I feel like I've been sidelined. Anyway, I'm glad to be back in the battles, uh, so to speak. And, uh, you know, it just, hopefully today will be the official kickoff. I mean, Monday was kind of a false start. I mean, I was still not completely there mentally. Uh, but uh, today I feel good. Today I, you know, I although I woke up this morning with a, a pretty serious sinus headache and uh, took a little bit of time to kind of work all of that out using decongestants and steam and uh, gargling with salt water, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, you know, I overall though, you know, I, I feel you know uh, the worst day if that was zero percent compared to that, I'm like to eighty percent. I'm not quite to a hundred, but um, man, oh man, the, I think the moral of the story is. Don't let Chris go on vacation. That's the moral of the story, especially with the, when there's Lutherans around, because <laughs> it's like uh, it's like a, a guy wandering through a desert and uh, coming across, you know, a, you know, a spring of water, and you know, and maybe drinking to the point of hurting himself. That's kind of what it's like. I spend so much time wandering the evangelical deserts that uh, when I come across, uh, you know, sp- you know, some genuine. Kindred spirits, guys that, uh, you know, I don't have to explain things theologically to, but we, you know, we have common ground and we can, you know, kind of work our conversations out like that. Well, I'll end up talking their ear off and staying up till two in the morning, you know, 
every single night. And and then what happens after that? Well, <laughs> being that I'm mortal and getting old and creeping decrepitude has uh, it's no longer creeping. It's just here. Decrepitude is a you know has found me and uh, and to varying degrees and different aspects. And you know it's just, you know with decrepitude upon me. Uh, I can't do what I used to do when I was in college. Anyway, so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> okay, yeah, he's, he's still, he's still a little, just a little raspiness in there. Just, a, I heard it. Anyway, all right, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. By the way, did you like uh, uh, Charles Saint Ange? Uh, just, oh man, I, I can't. I, the guy's brilliant, even though he looks like Obi Wan Kenobi. But don't tell him I said that. Um, I think, I mean, it it was, oh man, there were so many good speakers and so many good, uh, breakout, uh, section, you know, speeches, uh, you know, uh, at the, uh, higher things conference that, you know, there's some, a few guys that I want to, uh, you know, uh, have on the program or feature here on pirate Christian radio. And, uh, like for instance, one of the guys, uh, I talk with, uh, the Reverend Jonathan Fisk, he's in uh, Pennsylvania and, uh, he does worldview everlasting. If you've never seen, uh, a Jonathan Fisk video, uh, uh, <laughs> a Rev Fisk video. Uh, the best way I can describe it, uh, Worldview Everlasting, is it's a it's a video podcast, and it's like Lutheranism for people with ADHD. Uh, best way I can describe it. And uh, Jonathan Fisk, I mean, just a smart, smart guy, uh, ex evangelical, now uh, now Lutheran, and uh, just. It, guy is well read, and and actually does a very good job of teaching. I mean. One of the things he does on, uh, on, I think it's on Tuesdays on his uh, on his video blog is that you know he uh, he works through the lectionary and discusses the, the you know the salient Greek things. And if you don't know Greek, I mean it doesn't matter. You should really watch these videos. But like I said, it's Lutheranism for folks with ADHD. And uh, had a chat with him. And one of the things we're going to be doing is uh, kind of changing things up for our Friday uh, schedule here at uh, Pirate Christian Radio. And um, uh, you know, critical issues commentary, Bob DeWay's program. Well, that's no longer uh, a that's no longer a living ministry at the moment, and so uh, you know that's not on the air. We don't have any new episodes of that. And uh, the the guys, the two Anglican guys, uh, Jacob Smith and Sean Norris, uh, who are doing uh, the uh, the two words uh, uh, program for the better part of a year. Uh, one of them has gone off to seminary, and uh, there's there's no new episodes of Two Words, and so. Uh, you know, it's like I'm looking for a replacement. Well, found it. Uh, Reverend Jonathan Fisk on this Friday. Uh, yeah, I think at, at uh, 12:30 is uh, when we're gonna uh, that when our new broadcast day begins on Friday. So I still actually have a a half hour spot open. You know, if you if you you know any good uh, good confessional content, you know somebody who wants a 30 minute spot on a Friday. And uh, in maybe somebody who's never tried their hand at radio but has a compelling idea. Um, you know, send me a you know send me an MP3 uh, pilot, and uh, we'll go from there. But on, at twelve thirty on Friday, we're going to be featuring uh, the preaching of the Reverend uh, the Re- Reverend Fisk of Worldview Everlasting, and uh, in, in the first I got the first four sermons that uh, I mean you know th- that he sent me, and we're not going to play all four of them on Friday, but uh, he's going to be doing uh, exegetical preaching through the uh, the Epistle to the Ephesians, uh, you know exegetical preaching through the the epistle of ephesians so you, you don't want to miss that um you just you know i'm just saying you know it's gonna it's a new new content available here at uh at uh, pirate christian radio so slides to share that with you just you know you know little house cleaning uh items anyway 
Okay, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, we're going to start off with a Patricia King video. And, this, you know, of course, Patricia King is a regular feature here at, uh, at uh, Fighting for the Faith. And the reason why is because she represents uh, basically uh, this new kind of uh, charismatic mysticism that has taken over much of uh, the visible church. And uh, she's a false prophet, and uh, she's uh, a you know false teacher, Bible twister of uh, you know extraordinaire. But from time to time, she says some stuff that's rather insightful. At least it's insightful in the sense that it gives you a peek inside of the the theological mind of her of uh, you know her. I don't even want to call it a wing. Uh, her her particularly twisted brand of something that calls itself Christianity, but is in fact a counterfeit. And uh, anyway, uh, so she, she, her latest video is entitled, Are These the Last Days? Are These the Last Days? And it's kind of an interesting mix of new apostolic stuff, uh, dominionism, and, and all that kind of stuff. Worth the listen to. And uh, and then I'm going to be uh, reading, um, well, we're going to be focusing on our attention uh, back, well, actually, I'm going to read a thing from uh, Martin Luther entitled A True Preacher. What is a true preacher? I'm going to be uh, reading a Walther quote, a CFW Walther, uh, preach the word of God in its truth and its purity. Uh, yeah, I, I want to do a little bit of teaching uh, via some guys who, you know, well, th- th- their stuff has stood the test of time, if you know what I mean. Walther and Luther both, uh, their, their stuff has withstood the test of time. And then I want to circle back. Um, on Monday, we talked about the... Um, the the Oslo shootings, the uh, the the Norway terrorist, and uh, and play. I played for you audio from uh, you know one of the earlier news reports where uh, they were basically saying this guy's a fundamentalist Christian. Well, um, I'm going to read several stories you know that deal with this topic because um, again, uh, this guy has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. I mean. To make the claim that he's a Christian would be like saying Roseboro's an evolutionary scientist. I mean, I, I'm not. <laughs> you know, there's I've got like nothing. Yeah, anyway, you, you, you know, you get what I'm saying. So that's what we're gonna we're gonna spend some time. And I, I've got uh, I've got a a, a WorldNet Daily uh, article I want to read. I, uh, Michael Horton has chimed in, and then uh, Scott McKnight uh, on his um, Patheos blog. As uh, he's got a blog on Patheos called Jesus Creed, and uh, Scott McKnight is not exactly the most uh, conservative guy out there. Uh, he's one of the experts on the emergent church, and uh, and I think theologically he drifts uh, definitely. Well, he lists to the left, and uh, you know his ship needs to be righted. But notice the play on left and right. Yeah, that was intentional. Anyway. Yeah, no extra charge for that, by the way. You know, when I throw those little things out, yeah, that's all free. That com- comes along with the programming. Anyway, <laughs> he lists to the lo- he lists to the left, and uh, even he is uh, uh, supremely skeptical of uh, of uh, the, of the the Christian label bl- being applied to this guy. So we're going to take a look at that, and then in hour number two, we're going to be going to Michigan, Plymouth, Michigan, and we're going to be l- listening to a sermon. Okay, um, yeah, this, I think this was an intentional double entendre on their part. The name of the sermon is Losing Our Butts, and it's B-U-T-S, not B-U-T-T-S. So the name of the sermon is Losing Our Butts, It's Good Enough, and uh, the uh, it's not by the main pastor there. I think the main uh, uh, teaching pastor is Brad Powell, but uh, this is by one of the associate uh, pastors there. His name is Ed Ollie. 
and uh, and so we're going to be listening to that sermon. And you know, I got to tell you, it has a bona fide gospel nugget in it. I mean, we don't we don't really get a lot of the gospel nuggets in our sermons anymore. I, I remember when I first uh, started doing uh, fighting for the faith on a daily basis, and this is when we launched Pirate Christian Radio at the end of June. Three years ago, I can't do the math in my head because I don't do math, and, and you know, and I have mucus clogging things up, and I can't think about it. But anyway, you uh, <laughs> Roseboro, I I know it's just call me lazy. Anyway, um, so uh, the um, the how do I explain this? When I would when I would do sermon reviews, if you go back into the way back machine on the Fighting for the Faith uh, 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 podcast. Uh, our first year, uh, one of the things that would generally happen, you, you know, these seeker-driven churches hadn't drifted as far as they've drifted now. And from time to time, you'd actually, actually frequently, you would hear what I call the gospel nugget. It would come in and go out really quick. And, and this was the sound we played. Yeah, that, 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 so, and we used to, what I used to do is, uh, is to calculate how quick the gospel nugget was traveling, and and there there was times that I mean that thing would go in and go out so quickly. I mean, I mean, if, if I didn't even point it out, you you might have missed it. And so uh, this is one of those sermons where we actually have a bona fide gospel nugget in it uh, partway through the sermon, and I was surprised to hear that. I mean, it's been, it's been really a long time since I've heard a seeker-driven guy accidentally mention anything to do with the gospel, and uh, you know. <laughs> Maybe uh, maybe it's because he's an associate pastor, and uh, those guys don't know any better to not actually preach the gospel. Um, yeah, notice the sarcasm. So, um, yeah, anyway, so uh, that's what we're going to be doing in hour number two today. So, you know, we've got a long way to go today. Make yourself comfortable. Um, you know, we'll celebrate the fact that I actually have a voice and can record my program. Um, you know, I'm enjoying, uh, by the way, <laughs> yeah, the other day I upgraded my laptop. Now, I haven't upgraded the uh, production computer uh, in studio at uh, at uh, Pirate Christian Radio. I haven't upgraded our production cr- uh, computers or streaming computers uh, to the Mac OS X line, but I updated my uh, my laptop, and boy, oh man, is this a great operating system. Loving the new features. I- I'm waiting for them to work some of the bugs out before I put it on the production computer, because one of the things I've noticed is, is that when Mac has a major uh, OS release, some of the uh, the stuff, some of the software that I depend on on a day-to-day basis uh, in running the radio station and producing Fighting for the Faith, um, some of that stuff ends up being incompatible, and sure enough, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the the major programs I use is incompatible with Line, and so I'm waiting for them to, you know, to well to fix it. That's the best way I can put it. So, but you know, again, uh, Macintosh. Well, I mean, it might as well have been created, you know, in heaven itself. I mean, that's how good the operating system is. So, I know some of you are just rolling your eyes and groaning. I know, I know. Anyway, so let's uh, make yourself comfortable. Uh, we don't mind if you have an adult beverage. Keep in mind the biblical prohibition is against uh, drunkenness. You don't want to abuse the gifts of the end of being enslaved to it. That's silly. And, uh, of course, you know, fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your listener experience. But if you're living in the Midwest, at least anywhere near where I'm living, uh, you don't want to wear them right now unless you've got the air conditioner set to Arctic blast. In fact, it's, when I was reading the news, uh, the newspaper here in Indianapolis earlier this week, I was surprised to read that the city of Indianapolis has uh, basically is begging and pleading with the public, don't water your yards this week. Uh, tomorrow's high without humidity is going to be close to 100. 
and uh, all, all of the yards in uh, in and around where I live, they, they all look dead. It's a it's nice golden baked brown color now. And it's it's it, we haven't had nearly enough rain, and they're telling us don't even water your yards at least until sometime next week. So uh, that being the case, if you're in one of those places where you can't water your yard, and because it's so hot and stuff like that, don't even try the fuzzy bunny slipper thing because your feet will end up sweating, and then you won't enjoy the program. But if you can, you know, if you're in a cooler climate, uh, they do enhance your listeners' experience. I I can I can attest to this from personal experience myself. So let's dive into the program proper. So here's the burning question. Are we living in the last days? I mean, the last of the last days. Well, to weigh in on this hot topic, we've got, well, none other than Patricia King. Hi, you know, in these days, there's a lot of people who are unsettled and asking a question, are we living in the end times? Is this it? Is this the end of the world? I've heard uh, prophecies uh, from Christian prophets and from psychics and from false religious prophets and, and even from scientists and that, that say that, that things are going to shift in 2012. It could be the very end of the world, especially as we know it. <laughs> it could be the end of the world, especially as we know it. I mean, Patricia, do you think you got that from the band REM? I mean, have you been listening to my William Tapley updates? Is that where you got that uh, idea? It, it, it's, it's the end of the world, especially as we know it. You know, oh, man, you know, it just. See, R.E.M. got it wrong. It starts with Christian prophets and false prophets and pagans making prophecies. No word from William Tapley on the uh, Oslo shootings yet. I'm sure he's working out the numerology. Especially as we know it, according to Patricia King. Oh, man. So <laughs> I always find it funny when she you know, puts a video together and it's obvious she's been listening to some kind of an 80s band or whatever, and, and their lyrics creep into her videos. So this is the second time I've nailed her on that. Um, yeah, this is, it's the end of the world, especially as we know it. Thanks, Patricia. Yeah, you should be singing for R.E.M. Anyway, let's continue. Um, what? What is going on? What are the prophets saying in the church? Yeah, I, I, anybody who claims to be a Christian prophet who is getting divine insight as to what's going down right now or in, in the immediate future, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet a slug nickel on them. No, I mean, <laughs> so far, I've, I've, the total true Christian prophets I've run into who you know claim to be able to tell the future, zero. I've run into zero and. And uh, uh, false prophets, all of them. <laughs> it's like every single one of them. 
Um, yeah, I, I don't trust the folks who say that they're hearing directly from God, the Holy Spirit, because over and over and over and over again, what gets lost? Christ and him crucified for our sins. The proclamation of the gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, you know, teaching God's word in context and teaching the full counsel of the word of God, teaching that all all that Christ has commanded us to, to, to know and to learn and to mark, to, you know, to digest, to to live, to do, to avoid, to believe, all of that gets lost um, and by the person who claims that they're so holy that they're hearing from God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, go with the Sola Scriptura thing. God's already spoken. You, you can trust God's word. You can absolutely trust it. Why? Well, Chris, Christ Jesus uh, is raised again from the dead on the third day. He's resurrected. Yeah, think about it. Anyway. And um, I know that there's a variety of different uh, thoughts, and it could be possible that the world as we know it will end in 2012. Really? Okay, yeah. The world as we know it will end in 2012. So there you go. As you, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. But as far as the whole Earth burning up and you know Armageddon war and stuff like that, I personally do not believe that is going to happen in 2012. But yeah, why would that be, Patricia? I mean, why do you not believe that that's? I mean, that why couldn't it be 2012? Could, why couldn't it be like next week? You know, next Thursday at you know 3:04 in the afternoon. I don't know why 3:04, but you know, just figure. You know, I do believe that we're going to see shifts. And a caving in of systems, mm, as we know it. Systems caving, wow. Even there's going to start to be a major shift in the monetary system. There's going to be shifts in... Yeah, you don't have to be a prophet to see these problems coming. Uh, rule and reign. Just kind of somebody who, you know, reads the news critically. And the way nations are governed. Yeah. There's going to be global shifts. And as far as uh, the, uh, the introduction of global rule and reign... Uh, financial. Uh... So, so you think that by 2012, the end of the world as we know it is coming, and Patricia King thinks that we're going to be experiencing global governance. Okay. Rule and reign. You're going to start seeing a lot of shifts in that way. There's going to be um, contentions in the realm of the spirit where you're going to see the powers of darkness. Spiritual contentions. Hmm. Sounds contentious. Contending with the power of light like never before. Yeah, I don't even know what that means. You're going to see the power of error contend with the power of truth. Yeah, that's what we do on this program every day. You're representing the side of error. Yeah. Like never before. And so these are critical times. Yeah. If they're the end of the last days, I'm not sensing that. Oh, okay. Well, see, there you go. Yeah. I, I, everybody can rest easy. Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon because, well... Patricia King isn't sensing that. Oh, brother. But I do know this, that we need to make a decision now okay. for how we are going to live the rest of our days. For me... Okay, so I need to... Uh, would, would you want me to write down my decision on a piece of paper, maybe fold it up and put it inside of an envelope and then put it in a safe deposit box so that I can refer back to it? How, what do you want me to do with this particular decision? How have... I mean, folks, I mean, this is important. You need to decide now. Right now, how you're going to live out the rest of these days? You need. Um, okay, I'm going to uh, live them standing up. Um, I'm going to live them breathing every few seconds, and having a target heart rate of 68 beats per minute. How's that? It's a non-issue. I'm going to live the same today as I would live if it were the end times. You know, in the days of Noah, there was a warning. God gave a warning that, that he was going to destroy the earth by flood. And as a result of that, he gave uh, Noah a pattern to 
to build an ark of safety, of salvation, because he was going to judge the whole world. And he says, but, but I want you to build an ark of safety. I want you and your family and the animals to be preserved because I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring you into a new day. I'm going to bring you into a new way. And so he was going to destroy elements in the earth, but preserve Noah and his house. And of course, we know that that is a type or a picture of Christ and what he did to to bring a place, an ark of safety for his people to live in. So that's you and I. We, okay. we live inside of that ark, but there will be judgments that the earth will, will face. In fact, I don't understand the whole ark thing as it pertains to judgments on the earth. Yeah, because I I don't I, yeah well hey you know what uh, this <clears throat> you know Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis he's building an ark yeah now I, personally I'm I'm kind of excited to uh, to go see it when it's done I I think Ken Ham's ministry is fantastic but m- maybe we need to look at this in the grander scope of apostolic new apostolic uh, weirdiness and uh, and see that that's a sign of something you know because you know Ken Ham he's building an ark down there you know it, the Because of sin and the corruption that comes from sin, all creation is groaning. It's groaning and calling out for the the body of Christ to arise as true sons of God and take the dominion that we have to release creation from its captivity. Did you hear that? That is just flat-out dominionism. I mean, wow. So we're to take dominion in order to release Whoa. Okay. Yeah. See, that's the thing. In this new apostolic reformation, these folks actually believe they've got to take dominion over the whole earth and get everyone to righteousness, you know, to live rightly. And that's how they're defining it. And then they can then release the kingdom of God and, and then Jesus's reign will appear. Wow into our glory. So that is something that is going to happen in the end days that we're being prepared for now. Oftentimes, you know, the end times when people... Yeah, notice that her own eschatology, you know, dominionism, uh, this dominionist eschatology, you know, makes it so that uh, Jesus can't show up and for the end, 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 end to be tomorrow. Uh, the the reality is, is that Jesus could return in glory to judge the living and the dead next Thursday at 3.04 in the afternoon. Why, I, why 3.04? I have no idea. I'm just picking a day and a time. But the point is, is that there's nothing left that that needs to be fulfilled. Jesus can show up any time, but not by these folks' uh, reckoning because they reject what the Bible describes eschatologically, that things are going to progressively get worse and worse and worse and worse. And then, you know, Satan has his little season and then, you know, and then Christ returns. Um, they, you know, they, they think that things are going to get better and better and better and better. And as a result of the reason why she's not sensing that the end, end, end is uh, next, you know, is anytime soon, you know, maybe, you know, 2012 or whatever. It's because uh, it's obvious that the, her, her and her dominionist buddies haven't taken over the world yet. People think of it, they think, okay, well, there's going to be this big beast and this ugly monster and the Antichrist are going to come and wipe out everybody, including the church, and we're just going to be hiding out in caves, eating tribulation food, martyred, you know, everywhere with no one left to live normal and no one having any victory. And that's just not what the word says. 
But Jesus did warn about the end of the days and how there would be the clash of kingdoms and how, how the earth itself would start to quake. And that's because there's, there's a reaction to the power of sin. But you and I in Christ are not of sin. We are of righteousness. And so we are to take a stand, a righteous stand. We're not of the world. We might be in it, but we're not of it. Therefore, we stand strong in the end times. If these truly are the end of the end days, then have you made your decision how you will stand? You know, um, in Acts chapter uh, 2. Notice it's all dependent on you. I mean, it's... (laughs) It's up to you. If you're going to survive, you got to make a decision on how you're going to stand. Where's Christ and him crucified for our sins? Where's our great God and Savior who died and rose again victorious from the grave? Who's going to come again with glory to judge the living and the dead? Strange stuff that we're hearing from Patricia here. Um, it says that, that um, and it shall be in the last days, God says. That's a prophecy from Joel, but it was reiterated in Acts 2 by Peter. It was brought back to their attention, and it needs to be brought back to our attention now. Because Peter didn't stand up and say, in the end of the last days, there's going to be all this horrible stuff happening, and the Antichrist is going to come, and there's going to be all these judgments. No, he told the church what to expect. And he said, I will pour forth of my spirit on mankind, and your sons and your... You know, actually, Patricia, you're right. I, I'm going to pause you right there, and I'm going to spend just a smidge of time Uh, reading for you what the Apostle Peter told us to expect in the last days. And the way, where where do you find this? Uh, If you have your Bible, flip on over to uh, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. This is uh, Peter's second letter, okay? Um, It it describes in great detail what the last days are going to be like. Now listen to this. Second uh, Peter chapter two, starting at verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, who was a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of, of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example, what is going to happen to the ungodly? And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, and he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially of those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. They are bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these... Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. 
They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsaid souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They are accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice, restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. From them the gloom of outer darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after having escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the proverb, what the proof, true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord of our Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and by and that by means of these the world that then, that then existed was deluged with water and it perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening and the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as, sal of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of the letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. See, worth reading. I mean, because 
correct me if I'm wrong, but Peter kind of has a, a clearer eye on, on the end than, well, Patricia King does because she's trying to divine it based upon her, the false theology that she, she subscribes to, as well as her own feelings. But Peter was taught by Jesus directly about these things. And he tells us not only to look for what's coming, you know, primarily look for the deception, look for the false teachers in the church, the scoffers, who are saying, oh, where is the Lord? When is this coming, right? He says, yeah, but with this in mind, destruction is coming. And then ask the question, because we've been saved, because we've been bought, how, and, and we know that the end is coming, that he's coming to judge the living and the dead, that all of this stuff is transient and temporal. How are we then to live our lives? in light of this reality, and he gives us the answer. Patricia King, well, she gives us all kinds of weird advice, but none of it really seems to even compare, really even compare at all to what the Scriptures teach us regarding how we ought to live with the knowledge of the fact that Jesus Christ will soon one day, maybe next Thursday at 3 or 4 in the afternoon, I'm not predicting that, but I'm just saying this, this is the time I'm saying. He could appear at any time. How are we ought? To, how then are we to live? in this transient world with that in mind. All right. We're up on our first break. If you would like to email me, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. 
it's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. <laughs> Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. <laughs> yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. <laughs> yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Right, we're back. Oh, it feels good to have my voice back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if they're engaging in the Patricia King nonsense or not preaching the gospel. Just saying. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio, and we are in the dreaded summer months. Yes, with the heat, people travel and visit places, and as a result of that, well, giving goes down a little bit, and and our bills don't go away, but the, the, the money seems to disappear for a little bit of time. No problemo, I just remind you of it, and to let you know that we truly do need your help to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you and to the world, and the way you can support us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons there, the Join Our Crew button, when you click on that, you're signing up to contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis to support Fighting for the Faith. And there's perks in that when we publish new books and resources, as a crew member, you get those. Uh, you, you know, Check your email when we, uh, when we send those out. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution and specify the amount, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, from Uh This is a, 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 a quote taken from Martin Luther's Sermon on the Gospel of John, 
chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. It's uh, talking about the office of preaching and of preachers and of hearers. That's the, that's the idea here. Uh, Luther says, he's, here's what a true preacher is. The doctrines of men, however admirable, fall to the ground and with them the conscience that has built upon them. There is no help nor remedy, but the word of God, it is eternal and it must endure forever. No devil can overthrow it. The foundation is laid upon which the conscience may be established forever. The words of men must perish and everything that cleaves to them. Those who enter not by the door, that is, those who do not speak the true and pure word of God without any addition, do not lay the right foundation. They destroy and torture and slaughter the sheep. Therefore, Christ says further in this gospel, but he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter opens and the sheep hear his voice. The porter here is the preacher who rightly teaches the law and shows that the law exists and must reveal to us our helplessness, that the works of the law do not help us, and yet they are insistent. He then opens to the shepherd, that is, to Christ the Lord, and lets him alone feed the sheep. For the office of the law is at an end. It has accomplished its mission of revealing to the heart its sins until it is completely humbled. Then Christ comes and makes a lamb out of the sheep, feeds it with his gospel, and directs it how to regain cheer for the heart so hopelessly troubled and crushed by the law. The lamb then hears Christ's voice and it follows it. It has the choicest of pastures and knows the voice of the shepherd, but the voice of a stranger it never hears and never follows. Just as soon as one preaches to it about works, it is worried and his heart cannot receive the teaching with joy. It knows very well that nothing is accomplished by means of works, for the one may do as much as he will. Still, he carries a heavy spirit and thinks he has done enough nor done, nor done rightly. But when the gospel comes, the voice of the shepherd says, it says, God gave to the world his only son, that all who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Then is the heart happy. It feeds upon these words and finds them good. The lamb has found its satisfying pasture. It wants none other. Yea, when it is given the other pasture, it flees from it and will not feed therein. This pasture always attracts the sheep, and the sheep also find it. God says in this prophecy of Isaiah, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it accompany, it shall accomplish all that all the things whereto I send it. Great point that Martin Luther is pointing out here. And, uh, you know, of course, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 11 is the passage where Jesus says that, you know, I'm the good shepherd, the sheep hear my voice, and, you know, the the, the thief and the robber doesn't enter by the gate, but, uh, you know, that, all that kind of stuff. And so Luther takes this passage and points out the fact that the false shepherds, the false shepherds are the ones who beat and devour the sheep, and they do so by not preaching Christ, by not preaching the gospel and and, and uh, the good pasture, the restful pasture of the free forgiveness of sins won by Christ's death on the cross. But over and again, false preachers are ones who abuse the sheep, beat the sheep, and only give them the law as if somehow doing good works merit favor before God or in part or or in whole, depending, uh, uh, contribute to our salvation. They, our works do not contribute to our salvation. 
And so it's it, we're not under the law, we're under the gospel. The, God, the law shows us what a good work is. We're set free from sin, death, and the devil. But we need to constantly be hearing Christ, 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 and the gospel. That's what we need to be hearing. And uh, if you listen with any regularity to the sermons we review here at Fighting for the Faith, one of the common themes you hear from the guys who are mangling God's word is they have no concept of the gospel or they don't know how to make sense of it even when it shows up in the biblical text. And as a result of it, they're always preaching works, and they're not really true preachers. These are not Christian preachers. These are, well, not even experts. These are guys who tinker with and toy with the law, but they don't understand the gospel at all. Maybe I'll read the Walther thing tomorrow. Okay, moving along. All right, from the oh, from WorldNet Daily. Headline reads: Terrorist proclaimed himself a Darwinian. <laughs> Not really a Christian, anyway. Um, this was uh, written by. Well, who's the? Where's the byline? It just says by WorldNet Daily. Okay, now this is interesting. Nor, uh, the subhead to this uh, story reads. Norwegian's manifesto shows Breivik's not religious, uh, having no personal faith at all. Anyway, um, Dateline Washington, a review of Anders Bering Breivik's 1,500-page manifesto. By the way, I spent some time in this document. Convoluted thinker. Good night. This guy thinks he's some kind of a knight templar or something. He likens himself more really to a, a medieval crusader of some kind. Anyway, and just convoluted thinking. Anyway, um, this manifesto shows the media's quick characterization of the Norwegian terrorist as a, quote, Christian, may be as incorrect as it was to call Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh one. Yeah, that's right. Timothy McVeigh was uh, was not somebody who self-identified as a Christian. Anyway, uh, Brevik was arrested over the weekend, charged with a pair of brutal attacks near Oslo, Norway, including a bombing in the capital that killed seven and a shooting spree at a youth political retreat on the island of Utoya that killed more than 80 victims. Piecing together Brevik's various posts on the Internet, many media reports have characterized the terrorist who says he was upset over the multiculturalist policy stemming from Norway's Labor Party as a right-wing Christian fundamentalist. Yet, while McVeigh rejected God altogether, Brevik writes in his manifesto that he's not religious and he has doubts about God's existence, does not pray, but does assert the primacy of Europe's, quote, Christian culture, as well as his own pagan Nordic culture. Brevik instead hails Charles Darwin whose evolutionary theories stand in contrast to the claims of the Bible and affirms, quote, As for the church and science, it is essential that science takes an undisputed precedence over biblical teachings. Europe has always been the cradle of science, and it must always continue to be that way. Regarding my personal relationship with God, I guess I'm not an excessively religious man. I am the first and foremost of a man of logic. However, I am a supporter of a monocultural Christian Europe. I mean, <clears throat> now, I want to I point something out here. If you've seen the shots that were taken at me... Um, in the wake of the Oslo bombing uh, by some in the emergent, uh, the postmodern liberal camp, uh, basically saying that Pirate Christian Radio is, uh, we've got to stop Chris Rosebro and Pirate Christian Radio because Pirate Christian Radio makes people like this guy. Yeah, I, I'd like to point something out here. Um, 
Brevik has more in common with the emergence than he does with somebody like myself. And what I mean by that is the emergence are the ones who are trying to basically meld evolution evolution and Christianity together in a postmodern way. They're so-called evolutionary Christians. Uh, we play, we've played many of their sound bites here, uh, many of their teachings here on Fighting for the Faith, and, and it give them a good biblical critique. Um, so Brevik actually sounds more akin to those guys, but the, the reality is, is that it's not fair to lump them in with them either because it, those folks are, are flat, you know, they're really more or less pacifists. Brevik is a madman, uh, and he doesn't fit into any normal category. And it's wrong to say that he represents, you know, Christian fundamentalism of any stripe. Anyway, let me continue. The terrorist Brevik also candidly admits he finds no support within either the Catholic or the Protestant churches for his violent ideas. Let me read that again. Brevik candidly admits he finds no support within either the Catholic or the Protestant churches for his violent ideas. That's right, because both Catholicism and Protestantism teaches what the Bible teaches, and that is is that God has said, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. That's really a better translation. Mass murder is not a Christian ideal, a Christian uh, category, uh, something that Christians should aspire to. It's wrong every single time that it occurs, and the person who's done it needs to repent and have their sins forgiven. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, here's what Brevik says. Quote, I trust that the future leadership of a European cultural conservative uh, hegemony in Europe will ensure that the current church leadership are replaced and that the system's somewhat reformed. He, He writes, quote, we must have a church leadership who supports a future crusade with the intention of liberating the Balkans, Anatolia and creating three Christian states in the Middle East. Efforts should be made to facilitate the deconstruction of the Protestant church whose members should convert back to Catholicism. That's right. This Brevik guy believes that Protestants should be forced to convert back to Catholicism. The Protestant church, this is what he continues, the Protestant church had an important role once, but its original goals have been accomplished and have contributed to reform the Catholic church as well. Europe should have a united church uh, led by a just and non-suicidal pope who is willing to fight for the security of his subjects, especially in regard to Islamic atrocities. Does this guy sound like uh, anybody you know at church? And if you know anybody at church who sounds like this guy... Yeah, yeah, you might want to have an intervention. Anyway, no, this guy is not, is not, does not at all fit within any, within the pale of biblical Christianity at all. He is completely outside of the pale, which leads me to this, um, uh, this article, a blog post written by Scott McKnight, who I, like I said, lists to the left. He's not, he's not definitely not your. Uh, right-wing fundamentalist kind of guy. Um, and here's what uh, he wrote uh, yesterday in, on his blog post entitled Labeling the Norwegian Killer. This is from his blog, The Jesus Creed, which appears at Patheos. Anyways, here's what, he, uh, here's what um, 
Scott McKnight writes, he says, within a few hours of Brevik's horrendous, despicable acts of murder, someone assigned him to the Muslim terrorist fringe, and when it was clear that he wasn't that, someone assigned him to the Christian fundamentalist right-wing fringe. Labeling and classifying are how we make sense of things, and so much assignments are understandable and predictable, but these assignments miss something colossally important about Brevik. Proving he's neither Muslim nor Christian also misses the point. The problem here is not Brevik's supposed Christian orientation, for his own writings make it abundantly clear he has no idea what Christianity really means. Let me read that again from Scott McKnight, who is not a right-wing guy. Okay, here's what he says. The problem here is not the Brevik's supposed Christian orientation, for his own writings make it abundantly clear he has no idea what Christianity really means. Exactly. He has convinced himself he's a medieval crusader, and that's just not normal. So I'd like to suggest we learn to assign such terrorists, and uh, Lofner belongs to the same group, neither to the right nor to the left, but that we also avoid connecting them to a religion. A a Brevik fits no such box. Brevik is a nut. Brevik is a, a, a bona fide lunatic. That's the box he needs to be assigned to. Anyway, these sorts of folks and their numbers are minuscule in the world, can't be explained by normal categories because they do not live in the normal world. They are deeply disturbed, antisocial, racially charged, hate-filled, paranoid, delusional human beings who gravitate towards groups where they can find the emotional sensation of like-minded, hate-filled folks and where they can find ideas that feed their hatred and their morbid paranoia about the world. They also, they almost always discover there is no one quite like them, or if they are, if there are so few that they know that they are alone in their delusional perceptions of what the world is like, what color it ought to be, and what it, and what it most needs. These antisocial Delusional humans dwell in a world of their own making and they write things up in order to gather their hate-filled racist theories into some kind of a bundle of meaning and their writings never make sense to normal people. No matter what they say, they don't make sense. Making sense of people like Brevik is precisely the wrong thing to do. Posting a picture of him is what makes this so obvious. He looks normal. He isn't normal. And assigning him into normal categories fails every single time. Exactly. Guys like Brevik are not normal. He's not He's not part of the religious left. He's not part of the religious right. He's not part of Christianity at all. He has created his own fantasy world, kind of like the Matrix. It's, but it's the Matrix of his own making. And those people who are trying to make political hay and bludgeon their opponents you know, and somehow lump Brevik into that category and say that he's a product of their so-called hate speech or whatever, they don't know what they're talking about at all. It's just absolutely irresponsible. Brevik falls into the category of those who need to be locked up in an insane asylum prior to them committing their atrocities. After that, the death penalty really is the appropriate measure to take. Anyway, so, by the way, other folks have chimed in on this as well, including uh, uh, Michael Horton of the the, um, White Horse Inn. You can read uh, Dr. Horton's uh, blog post, by the way. It's called Enlightenment Fundamentalist Slays 80 at Norwegian Summer Camp. He makes a lot of the same points 
uh, that uh, was made in the World Net Daily story uh, regarding the crazy things that were said in this guy's manifesto that showed that this guy doesn't understand Christianity at all. But uh, there's one other point that uh, Dr. Horton makes that I think is rather at least interesting and worth passing along. And uh, partway through his, uh, his post, he says this, The 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche shrewdly observed that in his day, the bourgeois elite of Europe wanted the fruit of Christianity, for instance, the moral culture that Christianity produces, but they wanted it without the tree itself, i.e. the actual doctrines and practices of Christianity. And um, and he says Brevik is not a poster boy for Christian fundamentalism, but for but for the fulfillment of Nietzsche's prophecy. Uh, it's one thing to confuse the kingdom of Christ with the kingdoms of this age, but we need a new category besides fundamentalism for the secular faith in Christendom uh, without Christ. So um, I, Mike Horton kind of makes the the case here that Brevik uh, has a sort of Christless Christianity. Um, you know, that he wants the fruits of Christianity in a moral culture and people who are upstanding and good. Uh, weird for somebody like him to be speaking in those terms. Uh, but he doesn't. He doesn't want Christ. He doesn't want Christian doctrine. He doesn't. You know. He doesn't want salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. In fact, he even takes a swipe at it in his manifesto, and Dr. Horton points that out. So worth passing along if you would like to uh, read it. Again, you can find it at whitehorseinorg forward slash blog, and the name of the blog post is Enlightenment Fundamentalist Slays 80 at Norwegian Summer Camp. Okay, we are up on our second break, and uh, we're going to be rapidly moving towards our sermon review today. Uh, when you're not going to want to miss, it's again, it kind of shows the convolutedness of what's going on in in greater seeker-driven American evangelicalism. And uh, this one, again, it's odd in the sense that we will actually get a gospel nugget, um, but we'll see if it gets any better than that. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? 
Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be and pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzmann's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. We will be traveling to Plymouth, Michigan. More details forthcoming. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via north ridge church plymouth michigan pastor ed ollie presiding the name of the sermon is from the series entitled losing our butts Yes, that's an intentional, relevant double entendre, but it's spelled B-U-T-S, not B-U-T-T-S. And uh, this particular sermon is titled, It's Good Enough. It's apparently a sermon preached against that egregious sin known as mediocrity. (laughs) And the (laughs) passages that we're going to be looking at that apparently are teaching against this egregious sin of mediocrity art. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I can think of several passages that kind of talk about this, but I'm not sure if we're going to end up you know, at the logical place that you would think, if you know your Bible, you should end up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hate to say this. Before we even start the sermon, I mean, since he's going to be preaching against mediocrity, I... It's weird that this is really, at best, a mediocre sermon. Kind of ironic, don't you think? Anyway, here, let's kill the music. Okay, so without any further ado, here is Ed Ollie and his sermon entitled, 
Losing our butts. <laughs> it's good enough. Here we go. Well, hello, Northridge Church. Oh, you guys can do better than that. Hello, Northridge Church. I heard the late crowd is the crazy crowd. So I'm really excited that you decided to join us today. Um, I know some of you, when the lights came up, you started cheering. You're like, oh, my God, Pastor Harvey Carey has been working out. Man. Uh, did, did he really just say OMG? Oh, man. I'm serious. I, unbelievable. I, I don't even think he even it even registered with it. That's not appropriate, like, at all. In fact, it's just flat out wrong. No, my name is not Pastor Harvey Carey. For you all that may be new to Northridge Church, Pastor Harvey Carey is a friend of ours who's come and ministered many times, who happens to be African-American as well. So we have a slight resemblance. Um, <laughs> But welcome, welcome to Northridge Church. Um, I want to say right up front that if you're new, you may not know that Northridge Church is one church in three locations. We have our North Campus in Brighton How, and we also have our South Side. We got a few people from Brighton How tonight, and I have our South Side Campus in Ann Arbor, Saline, which actually I used to be a part of uh, from its inception. So it's great to have everyone joining us here on tonight. Um, I don't know if you've been enjoying the last three weeks with Tim Elmore losing our butts. I've been losing my butt literally and figuratively uh, this month in July. Man. Um, Yeah, so already, I mean, we're we're like two minutes into this and and already we got some problems. I mean, what's the focus? What's the focus? (laughs) Losing your butt. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm kind of put out by the OMG and the whole butt humor thing. But before we get into our topic tonight, you're probably wondering who is this guy, Ed Ollie. Well, thank you. I'm glad you asked. Um, I'm one of the new staff members here at Northridge Church. I've been on for the last three and a half months, and I have two primary areas that I'm really excited about and that Pastor Brad um, asked me to come and and have give us some help. And one of those areas is spiritual formation. How do people spiritually grow at Northridge Church? Um, We've been around long enough to know that church attendance is probably not the measurement for the fact I'm growing spiritually. So how does that happen? Where are we as a church and how do we help people in that process? But the second, yeah, by the way, I am no fan at all of so-called spiritual formation. Yeah, it, I consider it to be like voodoo science. It, it's quack. It's it, this. It's yeah. Second area that I'm going to be working in is also leadership development. We have incredible talent in this church and in our community, and I'm really looking forward to thinking through ways that we can harness that talent 
and be able to take things to the next level. So you'll be hearing more about that. Um, but it's so good to be here with you here at Northridge Church. I'm going to be talking this week about a but that is about as New antithetical to Northridge as it can get. But it's good enough. I don't know about you. You guys are probably uh, out there a little bit more spiritual than myself. But maybe a few people in the balcony and maybe a few people in Ann Arbor, Celine, have said, I just think it's good enough. I don't need to go to the extra mile. I don't know about you, but if you had a house and somebody was building that house and they said, "Mm, that wall doesn't necessarily look plumb, but I think it's good enough. I think you would probably ask for the money back, would you not? Now notice, we're not beginning in a biblical text. We're beginning with what he perceives as a problem. And this is kind of like one of those, like, serious, that's, that's your big burning problem? Really? Yeah, why do I need a crucified and risen Savior for this problem? And so tonight we want to look at what is this thing that we continually say, it's good enough. It really breeds mediocrity in our lives. And I just want to start out right on the bat. Now, I just got to ask a question. I mean, is the phrase, it's good enough, does it come from the devil? Um, Can you show me biblical passages that say that, you know, thou shalt not say it's good enough? To say all of us have experienced seasons of mediocrity in our lives. Can we be honest? All of us have experienced seasons of mediocrity. And I started to think about this. And God has some very interesting views on mediocrity. It's not in your notes, but if you look in Revelations chapter 3, verse 6, he starts to get into how he feels about mediocrity. In fact, he says, if you are lukewarm, I'll just spew you out of my mouth. I don't even want to have fellowship with you. Really, Revelation chapter 3 is about Jesus condemning mediocrity. Oh, man. <laughs> um, all right, let's, um, <clears throat> let's uh, take, I, you know, I don't even think he's got the, the passage correct. Hang on a second. Let me see if I can find this. Okay, yeah, it, it is Revelation chapter 3. It's verse 16. Let me read this in context. By the way, this is one of the letters that uh, Jesus commanded the apostle John to write uh, to the you know the seven churches and there's seven different churches that received a, a direct letter from Jesus to the church at Laodicea Jesus this is what Jesus said he he said to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen the faithful and the true witness the beginning of God's creation he says i know your works you are neither cold nor hot would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. 
the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne. Now, something you got to understand about Laodicea. Laodicea was a wealthy town um, that was known for its hot springs. Okay, and they also uh, they also had in Laodicea uh, a famous pharmacist, if you would. Uh, they were known for eye ointment. And so Jesus is making a play on words here. He's not condemning them for mediocrity. He's condemning them for being lukewarm in their faith, for not really loving Christ, for not having faith. They were they were they thought themselves rich when they were really poor. They thought they could see when they were really blind. This is spiritual blindness, spiritual idolatry that Jesus is condemning the churches at Laodicea for. And well, Ed here from Northridge completely missed the whole point and makes this about Jesus condemning mediocrity. That's not a proper handling of this biblical text at all. In fact, I would challenge him to find a single reputable uh, Bible scholar and uh, you know, commentator who sees that, the, that the, the real problem going on in Laodicea was they were people who were just you know, doing things to get by in their life and they were just being mediocre. Yeah, you're not going to find one. Let's continue. That's a, that's a pretty strong statement. It's not good. It's not bad. It's mediocre. I started to think about it in my own life. Are there areas that I can think about that have reflected this mediocrity? I have. T- yeah, preaching. That would be the place to start. Two. Uh, biblical exegesis, probably next. Two small daughters. Leah is six, getting ready to turn seven. And Kayla is four. And a couple years ago, Leah participated in a conspiracy called youth soccer. Any of you guys ever been to a youth soccer? I, I'm sure I'm going to get blogged and, and, and text on this one, but went to the youth soccer game. It was awesome to see the little kids kicking the ball around, having a great time. And one of the things that dawned on me was part of the rules. And in this particular league, the rule was for the first and second year players and third year players, we don't keep score. So um, at the end of the game, the coach got the players all together and it was co-ed and he said, kids, what did we learn today? What did we learn in the game? Little boy raised his hand, Johnny, what did you learn? I learned that we won six to two. And everybody was like, yeah. And the coach said, uh, Johnny, we don't keep score. Um, everybody's a winner. Right. <laughs> right, right. So, so then, you know, as a parent, I'm standing there and I'm just keeping my mouth shut. You know, I'm supposed to be spiritual. I'm not as spiritual as you guys, but I'm supposed to be spiritual, but I'm, I'm a pretty competitive guy. And um, he said, what did you learn, uh, Sarah? And Sarah raised her hand and she said, grandma told me before I left today that whatever we should do, we should win. <laughs> And he said, I think it's time for snacks. Even little kids know that mediocrity is not a goal. In our world, we either win or we lose. But it's very interesting if you pause for a moment and you listen to the culture, there are a lot of people who say that average may actually be the best goal. I found a clip in comedy that may illustrate this point. Take a look at this. 
New author who has a book out who says there's nothing wrong with losing your job, lowering expectations, and realizing that you are just an average schmo. I hate to turn to you after that, Brian. Well, I think you somehow enjoy it. That's Vince Stone. That's what he says. He's the author of the new book, Embracing Your Inner Mediocrity, Making Peace with Reality. And Okay, so why is it important to not overachieve? Okay, well, first of all, excellence puts us uh, under a lot of stress, and a lot of times... It's not even a, a possibility for most people. So you need to set your goal in the middle and be content with where you are. Do you have, a, do you have examples of, uh, examples of maybe uh, things we should embrace to be mediocre? Yeah. Well, what I've got is four tips that we want to look at. The first one is you want to maintain consistent adequacy. Okay? Okay. And by this I mean... Hit your marks. Okay. You, you don't want to do too much because if you overachieve in the workplace, you're just going to end up making a lot of people mad at you. It's like the A-plus student who blows the curve for everybody else. This person is not very well liked, so shoot for consistent adequacy and everything will be great. All right, what about perfection is the enemy of good enough? What do you mean by that? Well, like I said, um, there is a dark side to excellence and the pursuit of it. Listen, I've only been in New York for a few hours. It's rough out there. There's a lot of people stressing. Right. If they just concentrate on being content, it's going to be a much healthier way to live. Uh, also, there's always an upside. For example, if things are bad, there's always an upside. That's true. No matter how bad you, things are out there, there's always an upside. Uh, like, for example, if your wife is unattractive. If your wife is unattractive, then she probably won't leave you. So there's always an upside. You can find it. All right. And mediocre people can accomplish a lot like... Can you believe that this is what's being played during a sermon at a church? As if the, the big thing that Jesus came to solve was the big problem of mediocrity. Like whom? Let's look at NASCAR. I don't know if you're a fan. You're a sports guy. The most popular driver out there is Dale Earnhardt Jr. But does he ever win? No. Yeah. All right. Good job. Great meeting. Congratulations on a very so-so performance. Thank you very much. I was shooting for in the middle. You did it. All right, Vince. Take care. It's a great clip. It's a great clip. Even though we laugh and there are some nuggets of truth that are in that presentation, can we pause and recognize the fact that there are moments in our lives that we face this type of mediocrity. In fact, I would say that the line, the invisible line between mediocrity and living the excellent life that Jesus has for us is among all of us. In fact, the excellent life that Jesus has for us, what on earth is he talking about? Some of us have experienced this, maybe you're in a marriage that it's quite frankly, it's just average. It's not great. It's not bad. I'm not thinking about leaving, but it is average. Maybe you have endeavored to do something in your life, start a business. Maybe you have tried to help a friend who has gone through a season in their life where mediocrity is just the norm. I was thinking about this in preparation for the talk, and I realized that one of the areas that hits most of us in our lives that we may have experienced this is our jobs. For those of us who have jobs and for those of us who maybe are in between and in transition, 
It's very interesting as we get in our conversations about our jobs, what we think about those professions. And so I wanted to give you guys a poll that I came across and I want to use some cutting edge technology. And you guys know it here at Northridge, we like to use cutting edge technology. And so this one you maybe haven't used before and it's been a little while, uh, but we're going to use our hands by a show of hands. I, I know it's amazing. That is amazing technology, but I want you to raise your hand if any of the points that I read apply to you in your current situation. Is that all right? So here we go. 87% of the people in this room who are reading this post do not like their job. Okay, got a number of hands. Keep your hands up. 50% do not feel satisfied or fulfilled. 25% 25% of you are, are these sins that Jesus bled and died for? I, I'm confused here. You say that your job is the number one stress factor in your life. Ladies who are homemakers, uh, that includes you as well. You could uh, chime in on that. 41% of you are living from paycheck to paycheck. I mean, if we're just going to keep it real, we're living from paycheck to paycheck. I, yeah, yeah. 70% of you are not motivated by what it is that you do. I can't believe all the Northridge staff workers that have their, uh, I don't know what that, what that's all about. Um, 50% of you are woefully underpaid. 50% of you. Yeah. I, yeah. You 730 people are very interesting. 67% of you are in the wrong field. Yeah. 72% of you are in a place where you're being undermined and you will not succeed. I think tonight, today in Ann Arbor, Celine and Brighton Howe, I believe very sincerely that we have a lot of people who are dealing with mediocrity. The reality of the poll that I just gave you is that all of us will have roughly about 40 years of a working life. This year, you will work 2,080 hours. I mean, this is just horrible. I mean, I mean, this is just the most worst, terrible thing ever. There's people out there that are dealing with mediocrity. Unbelievable. It's, it's the end of the world. I mean... Uh, let's just call Harold Camping quick. We we need to sked, We need to move the rapture up quicker because there's people out there who are dealing with mediocrity. That that horrible sin. I mean, you know, call Congress, call the president. We've got to put a stop to this. Oh man! Just this year alone, you will work two thousand eighty hours. That means in your lifetime of work, you will have 83,200 hours doing something that you do not like. That is an amazing statistic, and it's hard to even hear and grasp, but many people go their entire lives in mediocrity, not pursuing excellence, not being in the bottom, just in the middle. I'm just numb. 
going through the motions, average. But despite the fact, my friends, that we know that failure isn't final, the reality is that we often resolve to land on the status quo. It's just not good enough. It's good enough, Ed. I really appreciate your motivation. I thank you that you're here to try to help me go to the next level of my life. But I have just resolved that it really is good to just stay right here. Well, Ed, why are you asking me to consider a change? Well, thank you. I'm glad you asked. The book of Mark is a fantastic book. Okay. I I just, this is... (laughs) tinfoil pyramid hat on i'm serious uh he's gonna take us to a passage that apparently he feels somewhere deep inside of his soul has something to do with mediocrity um (laughs) mark chapter two if you have your bible flip on over there yeah if you have any challenges in reading bible and getting into the word let me suggest to you the book of mark it really is like a dvd And Mark does one thing, and he does one thing very well. He talks about who Jesus is. He talks about what he did. And he leaves you, the reader, to wrestle with the reality of that point. One of the things that's interesting in the book of Mark is that Mark introduces us to a lot of friends of Jesus. And one of the interesting things that I found is that many of the friends of Jesus and who are prominent in Scripture are people who would be ignored today. We would just go right past them, homeless, leper, a mother-in-law that had a fever, bringing the sick and the lame, and Jesus wanted to spend time with them. And I thought to myself, what is it about these people that touch Jesus? In chapter one, he's very busy healing the sick, doing these miraculous things. It's early part of his ministry. And then we look at chapter two. If you guys would, if you have your Bibles or your smartphones or it's even in your notes. Yeah, please. You you don't want to miss this. Flip on over to Mark chapter 2. Go with me as we look at chapter 2, and I want to introduce you to some friends of mine. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached to them the word. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. You might want to underline four of them. We're going to come back to that. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, your, your sins have been forgiven. Let me pause there because when we read that, we just look at him just like, nah, it's all good. Some guys brought a guy to Jesus. It was, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> when I read that passage and I'm a homeowner, now I don't know where you all live, but where I live, I'm gonna just help you out right now. I'm not as spiritual as some of you all are. But if you come up in my house and tear a roof in a hole in my roof and you lower somebody into the second floor, um, I'm going to be meeting you there. <laughs> there might be a few other people meeting you there too. 
Can I point something out? Like I, I told you to have your Bible open to Mark chapter 2. I want to point something out. You'll see this in the ESV. It's also clear in the Greek. Let me read Mark chapter 2, verse 1. When he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Whose house was this according to the biblical text? This was Jesus' house in Capernaum. Jesus is the homeowner. But since uh, Ed here is engaging in uh, sermonic mediocrity, um, he wouldn't really want to take the time to actually do an excellent job of exegeting the passage. And we may not be praying together. Can you believe these guys, the audacity of these four guys, they're heroes of mine in scripture. We don't know their names, but somewhere along the line, they had heard that Jesus was in the house. They had heard that there's a possibility that Jesus has some power that could potentially do something for their friend. And they stopped at nothing. It was not gonna be an average day for these guys. Can you imagine the work to carry this guy to Jesus. They get to the house and they say, oh, forget that. We're not waiting in line for Jesus. Jesus is here in the middle of using an ATM, a teaching moment. And here they are and they're going, no, we need to get to Jesus. We're gonna go up the side of the wall, tear a hole in this dude's roof and lower the man down. Again, I told you guys, I'm not as spiritual as you. If I was one of those guys, and I read the first part of this passage, my hand would go up. I'm just that crazy. Jesus, excuse me, excuse me, bruh. Um, we brought our friend here who's paralyzed. I don't know if you notice, he's on a mat, he can't walk. Um, we thought maybe you could heal him so he could walk. And you just said, I'm forgiving his sins. Is there something you're missing, Jesus? Is there something, buddy, that you need me to break down for you? I mean, I, I appreciate this, but what, what is this? Why are you not healing him? I love this next bullet that's in your outline. Jesus looks beyond the presenting problems in our lives. He sees the real need. Have you ever brought something to Jesus in your mediocrity, in your being average? Have you ever brought him something and he said, hey, Ed, I'm glad that you brought me that, but I actually wanna talk to you about that. No, Jesus, that's not what I wanna do. I wanna talk to you about that that I brought to you. Jesus says, no. The greater need here for this man in their society was that he needed, he needed to have his sins forgiven. Okay, now this is a bona fide. There it went. That's the gospel nugget in the sermon. I I'm not certain if if we're gonna get one at the end or not. Um, but there it is. I mean, he, he did. He, this is an exegetical handling of the text. It's right there. It says Jesus forgave his sins. So, you know, your sins are forgiven. And he makes a point that Jesus is dealing with the ultimate need, and it's the forgiveness of sins. Great. 
Um, can we, I mean, the, the right thing to do here at this point is to turn it to the fact that we all need this same thing. Uh, let's see if he does that. You see, there's another group that was there and they are called the haters. Maybe you uh, are not familiar with that word if you're over 45. Let me help you out. If you didn't go to the London School of Linguistics and, and you don't know what it means to be a hater, a hater is somebody who just rains on your parade. They can't be happy for you and what is going on in your life. They always have to bring up the crap that's in your life to remind you, oh, you're not really a Christian. We know what you, please. I know that doesn't happen at Northridge Church, but maybe at some other places that these haters come up. And the haters in this passage are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious rulers of the day. And the reason why it's important to note who these guys are is Jesus knows that they're in the house. Jesus knows that they're there to look and try to make fun of what he's doing and try to undercut him. And Jesus does something in the second part of the passage that is incredible. Follow me and let's look and see what he says. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Get this. Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the man, I tell you, take your mat and go home. He got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all saying, this amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Can you imagine if you were standing in that house? Walk with me into this house for a moment and think about what it must have felt like to have Jesus walk up to the guys who were supposed to be running the show. These are the shot callers, the ballers of the day. He is coming up to them saying, hey guys, let me ask you a question. Which one can you do? Can you heal him? Or can you forgive his sins? And of course, there was no answer. Uh, yeah, you've uh, jumped the tracks here, um, Ed. Um, yeah. Can, can, can we uh, actually stick with the text? I mean, it's, it's a wonderful text. Let me read it from the ESV. Not that the translation you're reading from is inferior. It's just This is what I, uh, when I'm teaching what I teach from. Here's what it says. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. That's Jesus' home. And many were gathered uh, uh, together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he, Jesus, was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. 
Amazing. Um, keep in mind, this is in a Jewish context. Uh, the folks that are gathered around Jesus to hear him preach are all Jews. Sins are not just announced as forgiven in Judaism. There's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement with the scapegoat and the and the and the spotless lamb. There's sacrifices for every kind of sin that you can possibly imagine or you didn't even realize were sins uh, that are laid out in uh, in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy uh, and in Exodus. You you go go read the the the, the first five books of the Bible and uh, known as the Torah and uh, you know the forgiveness of sins is a bloody, messy, stinky, awful, horrible ordeal that involves the destroying and the killing and the the uh, you know of of spotless lambs it's it's an ordeal i mean for a jew to just say son your sins are forgiven and just completely circumvent the uh um the whole temple and the sacrifices that's unheard of. In fact, nobody has the authority to do such things except for God himself. And that's the point. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He He's blaspheming. And Jesus would have been blaspheming if he wasn't God in human flesh. They say, who can forgive sins except for God alone? Right. Who can forgive sins except for God alone? Immediately, Jesus, perceiving his spirit that they would thus question within themselves, says, why do you question these things in your heart? Now, notice he didn't say that they, these are evil questions. He's he's asking, the question, why, are you, why are you having these questions in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk. Well, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. You can't see that. But Jesus says, so that you might know that the Son of Man, that's him, has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. See, the, the healing, Jesus took the occasion of these gentlemen, you know, bringing this paralytic and lowering him through his roof, took the occasion to use this healing, not just to heal this guy, but to proclaim himself as the Messiah, that this would be a sign that he has the authority of God to forgive sins. So that you may know, Jesus said, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and he went out before them so that they were all amazed. And they glorified God, saying, we never have seen anything like this. And you're right, they had never seen anything like this. Here Jesus ties this basically this is this miracle proves that he has the authority to forgive sins and that's the prerogative of God alone. 
This is a sign pointing to him as God in human flesh, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And some believed as a result of it. This miracle's really all about Jesus. This has nothing to do with mediocrity in somebody's life. This has to do with the fact that Jesus is God in human flesh, come to save sinners and to forgive sins. This is good news for me, and it's good news for you too, because I, as well as you, daily sin against God in thought, word, and deed, by the things we do and by the things we don't do. This is good news because this Jesus who healed the paralytic and thus proving his authority to forgive sins is there for us to forgive us our sins. The need that the paralytic had is the same need that you and I have. We need our sins forgiven, otherwise we can never stand before a holy and just God because each and every one of us deserves God's wrath. Just by what we've done today, we've earned hell, all of us. But this is a God who forgives sins. Look at how merciful and how kind Jesus is. Yeah, that's all about Jesus. But, but see, Ed Ollie here is, uh, well, he's engaging in sermonic mediocrity, and he's kind of missing the whole point. See where he goes from here. You know what I love that Jesus does? Jesus wants to use your haters in your life as elevators. What do you mean by that, Ed? He- really, you, you got that out of Mark chapter 2. Jesus wants to use your haters as elevators. Yeah, there's some more sermonic um, mediocrity going on here, completely missing the point of the text by not paying attention. Yeah, that's, that's another form of mediocrity. He wants you to see that there are people who are in your life who have caused you pain, who have caused you suffering, and he's using it to work out his purposes in your life. He's allowing you to have that peace that passes all understanding. He's allowing you not to accept mediocrity. He's saying, you can make it with me. There's a guy named Paul, not Paul Black, our worship leader, uh, but there's a guy named Paul who was a little awkward, to say the least. Paul came to school with hand-me-down clothes. People made fun of him. Paul was dyslexic, and the teachers didn't know how to treat his dyslexia. Paul was told for most of his life, you'll never amount to anything. Paul knew what it was like to have haters every day at school. But Paul persevered and he went through school. He graduated from high school and he barely, barely got into college. Went to a community college. He was accepted in Santa Monica, um, Santa Barbara, I'm sorry, University of California. And Paul started to major in business. Paul continued and he graduated and he had an idea of a little print shop that he would hope could change people's lives. I don't know if any of you have heard about it, but uh, there's a Kinko's maybe nearby your house. And Paul Orphelia became the CEO of Kinko's. Uh, So, I mean, is that really what the point of uh, Mark chapter two is, is that fighting mediocrity so you too can be like 
Paul and you know be successful and an entrepreneur and a CEO? Yeah, I don't think that has anything to do with Mark chapter 2 and Jesus forgiving sins and healing the paralytic. Um, yeah, I, more sermonic mediocrity going on as we listen. It's weird, weird that he's preaching against mediocrity while delivering a, a, a less than mediocre sermon. I mean, mediocre might actually be an improvement at this point. He learned at an early age how to take murmuring and turn it into motivation. Some of you tonight need to go home and go to Walgreens and buy a card for some of your haters. Just go and get a card and send it to someone who's put you down and and that's hurt you in your life. And let them know that thank you for the push that you gave toward my destiny. I don't mean out of spite. I mean out of genuine thank you very much. Thank you that what you thought was for evil, God meant for good. And this card is just a presentation of, of my grace and, and love for you. Somebody needs to say thank you to the haters who have pushed you toward your destiny. But you know what? It's not just about that. I love how scripture puts it. What shall we say then in response to these things in Romans eight thirty one? If God be for you, who can be against you? If God's on yeah, no, again, out of context, I've got your Bible open up to Romans chapter 8. Um, yeah, I love how people just take Romans 8.31, and, and um, there's no context added to the question. I mean, we the, the question is thrown out, what shall we say to these things? That's what Paul says, what things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, if you read it in context, there's two questions in the in that verse. What shall we say then to these things? What things is should come to your mind? If God is for us, who can be against us? Um, well, let's read it. Let's add a little context to that verse. Is Romans chapter 8 about fighting mediocrity or about um, overcoming the haters in your life and using them as a, as a means of motivating you to push into excellence in your own life? Is that what's really going on in Romans chapter 8? You know, um, Romans chapter 8, verse 18 is where we'll start because our three rules for sound biblical hermeneutics are context, context, and context. So what is the context of Romans eight thirty one? Okay, well, let's take a look. We'll start at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, it doesn't say it does it for everybody, but all who love God, those are Christians. Um, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep that are to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, or height, or depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, you'll notice that the context here is making it pretty clear that these the things that we are, um, <clears throat> if God is for us, who can be against us thing. This is the mindset that we are to have as we experience persecution and suffering as Christians. It's not just that there's haters out there, but that proclaiming Christ as Lord and Savior, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in a sinful and fallen world is dicey business. And we can expect persecution and suffering as a result of it. And when the persecution and suffering comes, this is what's to frame our mind. God is for us. Who can be against us? And how do we know this? Because, well, God didn't spare his own son. Instead, he was crucified for you and for me. So, yeah, uh, Paul here is not talking about, well, overcoming mediocrity. And he's not just talking about generic, quote, haters, people who are detracting and basically saying, yeah, that, that whole vision dream you have for your life, yeah, you, that may not be realistic. That's not somebody who hates you. In fact, that might actually be somebody who loves you. So, I mean, this, this I'm sorry, I, I thought this was a mediocre sermon. I, I was wrong. This is far less than mediocre. If he achieved mediocrity, it'd be a huge improvement at this point. On your side, who can stop his work in your life? I think that one of the things in my life that I've learned about Jesus is that he has examples in our life. 
that bring us closer to him. Mediocrity is something that we don't aim for, but it's somewhere that we often land. And there's an example. Yeah, he clearly landed, uh, well, somewhere south of mediocrity in the sermon, that's for sure. Example that I want to use, um, but in your bullets, if we're to move from a life of mediocrity to a life of excellence, then we need to have the courage to make the right call. We need to have the courage to make the right call. And there's an example in, in the passage of scripture that I want to use in Ruth chapter one. Now, I don't know if you've ever read Ruth. Ruth, really, Ruth is about overcoming mediocrity. I, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I, hang on a second here. I'm feeling myself losing it. Ruth, but um, if I have any single ladies in the house, this, thank you for the single ladies. This, this passage is especially for you. I love me some Ruth. I have a awesome, awesome wife named Marcia, but my wife let me know this week that it was okay to have a girlfriend in scripture. Uh, so, so I have a girlfriend in scripture. Her name is Ruth and the girl's off the chain. I mean, she is incredible, but I want you to know why she's incredible and why I love her so much. Why I used her name as the middle name of my youngest child. Ruth refused to settle. In chapter one, what? Oh, man. We pick up the story, and I'll give you a little synopsis of one through 15. Ruth has lost her husband. He's dead, he's gone. Not only did Ruth lose her husband, she has a sister in law named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. <laughs> Switch over a couple letters. You guys are, you guys are pretty swift. Orpah lost her husband. She has a mother-in-law named Naomi. And Naomi has lost her husband. Are you guys sensing a theme here? Little death, little loneliness, isolation, maybe even some hopelessness. And Naomi does something incredible. When you first look at this passage, it looks like Naomi is trying to discard her daughter-in-laws and say, look, guys, basically, I don't have any more boys. I'm glad that you came to the well, but I don't have any more boys, and you guys can go back home. I'm going to go back home to Bethlehem now. The famine has eased up, and I just think that's what it's going to be. I'm out. Didn't work out that way. Orpah, she heard the message and she said, peace, <laughs> throw up the deuces, I'm out. I'm gonna go back home to Moab because Moab is what I know. That's my hometown. I know where people live. Uh, I'm going back to what's comfortable. I'm going back to what's average. I'm going back to just the basics. This is a complete mangling of the narrative in Ruth. Yeah, but what do you expect when uh, you don't know how to achieve exegetical excellence? Uh, you just end up somewhere south of exegetical mediocrity. But look what Ruth said in the 16th verse. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back. 
from where you will go, I will go. And where you'll stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will be people, and where you'll be buried, I will be buried. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her to leave. You know, it's really interesting, the whole Ruth story. If, 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 if Go look in the archives of Fighting for the Faith. I actually uh, read the entire narrative in one edition and showed to you that this is really pointing us to Jesus Christ because this all takes place in the genetic heritage of uh, of the Messiah. And uh, Ruth is, uh, yeah, I think, the grandmother or great-grandmother of uh, King David. All of this is in there for a reason. And, and the story of how uh, her and Boaz... Uh, come to be and how she's redeemed by him a kinsman redeemer uh, is a is a is a is an amazing picture of what Jesus Christ does for us did you capture that ruth decided to leave everything she knew she was from moab she decided i'm going to draw the line I'm not going back to what I know is comfortable. I'm not going back to share peace with some people that I grew up with. But when I got married, I found out about God, Yahweh in the Greek that's used in this passage. I found out that it's because of God. Yeah, Ruth was written in Hebrew. Um, <laughs> that I can have hope. She clung to her mother-in-law and said, I am not going to go. Have you ever had a moment like that where you drew a line in the sand? Have you ever had a moment where you... Yeah, the story of Ruth isn't about you. You could choose mediocrity and you said, no, I'm going to choose... And the story of Ruth isn't about mediocrity. You're actually hearing sermonic. Well, it's not even it's it's less than sermonic mediocrity that we're hearing here. This is just ridiculous. My destiny, my promise. You didn't know what the answers were. You had no idea. But you made a choice. If we're going to move from mediocrity to the excellent life, one of the things that we might want to consider is. If we are going to move from mediocrity to the excellent life, yeah, that's what the Bible's really pushing in all of these passages. Not at all. I mean, this is just legalism right light. It's 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 a it's a still legalism. This is all law. This is no gospel at all. He didn't he doesn't even correctly understand what the whole forgiveness of sins thing is all about. That's why it was a gospel nugget. And now if well, the thing that Christianity has come to solve is the big mediocrity problem. We must change our surroundings. I saw a clip that brought this up in a humorous way. Check out the screen. Proceed straight. This is a video clip from the uh, sitcom The Office. That's how it goes sometimes, you know. You lose everything, everything falls apart, and eventually you die and no one very good point to make. Make a right turn. Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. It means bear right. No. Up there. It said right. It said take a right. No, 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 no. Look, it, it means go up 
to the right, bear right over the bridge and hook up with 307. Make a right. Maybe it's turn. a shortcut, Dwight. It said go to the right. It can't mean that. There's what, a lake there. I think it knows where it's going. This is the the machine knows. This is the Stop yelling at me. No, it's Stop up yelling. yelling. There's no room here. Remain calm. I have trained for this. Okay. Exit the window. Here we go. Make a U turn if possible. Isn't the office great? You know, that's a funny story of watching some people make a bad choice. But life isn't often as funny as the office, is it? The reality is a lot of times we want to move past mediocrity in our lives. We, we know it's not good enough to just be good. We even say the words, it's not good to be good enough. But we keep doing the same thing and we keep surrounding ourselves with the same people that play the same DVDs in our mind that keep us from being all that God may want us to be. I faced this in my own life and I, I, I pause sharing uh, the story. It's not a story that I share a lot and probably won't share it on the stage um, from, at Northridge. Again, but I felt like it was an appropriate story to share of when this happened in my life. April 13th, 1996 will be eternally etched in my mind because I received a phone call that reinforced that it wasn't good enough. I was in campus ministry at the time working with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in Miami, Florida. I also was the chaplain for the Miami Dolphins, the Miami Heat, occasionally the chapels for them. And I also was the chaplain for the Miami Hurricanes. And we had a Bible study and um, we were talking um, together and there's a guy named Marlon Barnes who was in the study. Marlon was an incredible, handsome guy, easy on the eyes for the sisters. Um, a star player, certain to go to the NFL. I met him at a time in my ministry life where things were going awesome. A lot of times we think that mediocrity is always a negative connotation, but how many of you know you could be doing something really good and still be mediocre? I was actually having a ball in ministry, but I was operating on the fumes of my own gifts. Oh, Ed, you know, you're a great speaker, lead Bible study. I mean, it's just, it's just awesome. And I started to listen to the press clippings about myself. And then April 16th happened. You see, what you don't know is that we were having Bible study earlier that week. And Marlon had come to the Bible study and talked about a church service that he had attended at his aunt's church the previous Sunday. The guy was giving a talk and he felt like Jesus was talking to him. And when he got to the part of the service where he could respond, he said, I just, something just held me back. I knew I should have responded. I knew I should have gave my life to Christ, but I, I didn't. And he talked with his aunt afterwards 
And what they discussed was that moment. And he told his aunt, I'm going to come next Sunday and I'm going to give my life to Jesus. Came to the Bible study and I knew that there was a huge party going on on South Beach. We're going to be celebrating um, God's team, America's team, the Dallas Cowboys. Um, And I told him, I said, I don't think that you guys should go to the party down on South Beach. I mean, it's great. It's nice that you guys want to socialize. But um, I, at the time, was 25 years old, and I understood what South Beach and party meant. I knew that there wasn't going to be any glorifying God and giving, giving honor and singing hallelujah at South Beach. There was going to be a lot of worshiping going on, but it was not going to be worshiping to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the guy said, oh, Ed, it's all good, man. We'll be safe. We're going. I got a phone call that morning. And as I later found out, a few of the guys went to the party. And there were some other guys that were at the party. A beef came up. They talked. They argued. Marlon was there. Security broke it up. The guys end up leaving the club and Marlon stayed with a young lady named Tim Winika Lumpkins who had arrived with him. They went to high school together. She was in a domestic abuse situation and he had gone to help her get out of that situation two weeks before. They went outside the club and the tires on the SUV were slashed. Thinking somebody's angry, it's okay. We'll get a tow truck, be able to bring the tow truck, get the car. They go back to the University of Miami dormitory. It's now 334 in the morning. They're not going for prayer and Bible study. I'm just keeping it real. He entered the dorm, and somebody met him with the blunt end of a shotgun. They continued to beat him, and they continued to beat Timonika Lumpkins. A friend of mine has a husband who is a sergeant on the Coral Gables Police Department, and he said it was one of the most gruesome murder scenes that they had ever seen in Coral Gables. In one night, the destiny of a whole family and an individual was cut short because he chose to take the average route. He made the decision, a fateful one, to go to what looked like a harmless party. But you know what? The story's not about Marlon. It's about what God did in me. From that moment on in my life. Did he go to hell for mediocrity? (sighs) When I minister... I have a portrait of what it means when you don't give somebody an opportunity. What it means when people settle for average and being just good enough. And you think that you're doing something special when the reality is, Ed, you're not that special. You're just a vessel being chosen to be used by God. Somebody's here tonight. I, I'm I'm at a loss here. I mean, he just told a story about a guy who 
wasn't a Christian who went to a party, things went bad, and he was murdered. And he's now telling, and this is horrible. And rather, oh man, he's talking about himself now. Night, and you're hearing this talk, and you might be saying, Ed, how do you know my story? How are you talking to me? How do you know that I, I came in tonight and, and life is just average? In fact, I don't even know if I want to accept Christ. There's a couple verses that I want to share with you. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. But 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. In scripture, it's always right now. Right now is the time to turn from mediocrity. Right now is the time to say, being good enough is not good enough. It never has been. It never will be. Uh, where is repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Where does... Uh, oh. Romans 5 and 8 says this beautiful message. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, now we got a little more gospel, right? The reality is, if we're to move from a life of mediocrity... Christ died for our sins, and and you're talking about moving from mediocrity to something else. Unbelievable. To a life of excellence. So apparently, if you're not living a life of excellence, you're going to go to hell. It begins with Jesus. If you're here tonight, maybe you want to make that step. No, I, I, I don't. I, I'm not interested in making that step at all. I, I don't need somebody who saves me from mediocrity. I need, a, I need a savior that saves me from hell. Maybe you want to turn around. Maybe you are saying, Ed, I'm ready to make that call. Would you pause with me for a moment and just make my words your words? Say, Jesus. I'm going to keep going with the prayer. I don't normally let these guys pray for us. Notice he didn't cue the sappy music. Uh, but uh, I'm curious what the salvation prayer is saving me from. I know you love me. I really don't know all of what that means, but in this talk, I have felt you tugging at my heart. And I want to say yes. I don't know what he's tugging at my heart to do. I want to say yes to you. I want to turn from a life of mediocrity. Uh, I, I, I don't even have words. I mean, serious. You're, you're praying to Jesus, our great God and Savior, who was scourged, beaten, and crucified for our sins, and you're praying to him to save you from a life of mediocrity? You do understand that Jesus' shed blood saves us from the wrath of God that's soon to be revealed. And you're worried about a life of mediocrity? What a lame savior that is. 
What a completely impotent savior. It's the savior who saves me from a life of mediocrity. And start living a life of excellence. Come into this is like a different gospel altogether. I mean, I, I, oh, man. to my heart. In Jesus name. The scary thing is, is that somebody's going to pray that prayer and think that, oh, wow, wow, now I'm a Christian. Oh, man. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I cannot tell you how excited that I am. That's right. Mediocrity is now in your rearview mirror. A life of excellence awaits you. Congratulations. I can't tell you how excited... Um, that the angels in heaven are the... not the real angels, but the angels in the heaven that he believes in the 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 angels of excellence, uh, not the angels of mediocrity. You've made that step. And if you would, in your programs, there's a, a little card on the side. You can just tear that card off and check that you've received Christ. There's booths. Apparently you've received Jesus. If you prayed the it's not the sinner's prayer. It's the anti mediocrity prayer. Outside of here in Plymouth, as well as Ann Arbor, Celine, and Brighton Howe, just drop that in. Let us know. We would love to send you some materials to get you started on your journey um, with Christ. I think one of the things in the final point that I want to leave with you tonight is that you can't walk this journey and move from mediocrity to excellence by yourself. You need an excellence coach to help you, you know, continue your journey out of mediocrity. Paul had Silas. Peter and James had John. This guy does not know his Bible. Naomi had Ruth. Scooby had Shaggy. Drake had Little Wheezy. Simon had Garfunkel. You look through history, there are examples of people who attain greatness. They didn't do it alone. Well, Ed, why are you telling me that? Well, I'm telling you because I'm going to end with a little bit of my story. Yeah, forget about Jesus' story. Yeah, let's hear more about you, Ed. I can hardly wait. A year ago this week, I lost my mom. She was 59 years old, and she died of a heart attack in her sleep next to my dad. I was sitting at the funeral, and the family had asked me to speak on behalf of the extended family. And I said some words, and I'm looking at my mom's casket. At the time, I was working in advancement at the University of Michigan, very successful. I had a great, great run. And something started to settle in me. And the question that came to me as I was looking at my mom's casket was, Ed, when you were laying there, what are they going to say about you? You're worried about what people are going to say about you at your mom's funeral? Are you going to settle, Ed, just for a nice check and it's nice? Are you going to settle for that? Are you going to settle for vacations? Are you going to settle for toys? 
Are you going to go, Ed, and just be a person who's average and mediocre? Or are you going to abandon security and safety and say yes to the call I have on, my, on your life and that you know that I have on your life? So we were having this campaign last fall called Change Your Game. I don't know if you guys remember that. I signed up to be a small group leader, first mistake. It's amazing when you lead small groups, God works you over more than the people in it. And I was having an awesome time. We had 17 people in our house every, every week. And people were saying to me, Ed, it was funny. They didn't know who I was. And they said, Ed, have you ever thought about going into ministry? Hey, Ed, have you ever thought about pastoring? I think people would really listen to you. No, I haven't. That's why I'm doing this. And we had a huddle in the Change Your Game campaign. We got together and we had people here and we were telling them about the experience. And Debbie Baxter, who is an incredible woman of God who works here, was talking about how she didn't want to lead the small group, but how God called her to do it. And I was looking in the lights, sweating like I am now. And I was like, it was like everything went silent. And God said, Ed, why do you think I've given you the gifts that you have? Don't you love it when God asks you obvious questions? He knows the answer. He's just waiting to see, are you out to lunch? Are you going to listen? Are you going to take in what he's saying? It was in community in this small group and also in a men's group that I'm in where God paused and said, Ed, you need to carry this with other people. It's not about you. It's not about your journey. You need to stop being so stinking individualistic and allow somebody to carry you to Jesus. You're facing a decision that is going to change your life. So I talked with Pastor Brad about a number of things, not a job, mind you. And I said, yes, I think God's calling me to leave my position at University of Michigan. And uh, he said, has God given you any clues on what you're going to do? No, nope. no, Brad, hasn't done that. Okay. And um, you put your house up on the market in the winter. Yes, I did in Michigan. Yes, thank you, Brad. <laughs> thank you. Went to North Carolina for Christmas. And you won't believe it snowed 12 and a half inches. This guy sure does like preaching about himself, doesn't he? In North Carolina. I was so upset. I can't stand the winter. And so while we were there, it's New Year's Eve, and I get a phone call from my realtor. And she says, Ed, I know you won't believe this, but we have a cash offer for your house December 31st. I said, girl, quit playing. You know, you see... Really? You have an offer for my house? Yes, we have an offer for your house. In that moment, God said to me, I know you, Ed, 
and I told you that I'll provide for you. I told you if you follow me, I will protect you. And this last point, I wanna leave with you. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says this. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward these great things, to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as the habit of some people may be, but encouraging one another all the more. You know why I love those four guys in Mark 2? Because they encouraged each other as they were taking this paralyzed man. They knew that community was important. I love Ruth because Ruth said, I can't do it by myself. Mom, I need you and I'm gonna be a ride or die chick. I'm going with you. I don't know where you're going, but I'm going with you. And I love the small group that I'm in right now because they don't think that I'm so special, but they won't allow me to settle for anything less than God's best. I'm here. I mean, where is he reading these stories? I mean, what translation is all about not letting somebody settle for anything but God's best? What is he talking about? What is he reading? Here to tell you guys here at Northridge Church, we want God's best for you. We don't want anything from you. We want something for you. And you cannot do this alone. So as you go through this week, as you work on literally and figuratively losing your butt, know that it's never good enough and that mediocrity in the body is not an option, that God wants his best for you. Take care and God bless. Total total train wreck. I mean, mediocrity, it didn't even rise to mediocrity. I don't even have the right word to, I mean, wow. Wow. I mean, and, and we had a full-blown gospel nugget, but I mean, he couldn't connect the gospel dots if his life depended on it. And notice that the story about his mom's funeral and the the talented young football player who was murdered. Well, it wasn't really about them. It was about him. It was about Ed Ollie. Unbelievable. I just, I, I need to go take a shower. I, I feel dirty. Um, Wow. Wow. That's all I can say is wow. And this is what's being passed off as a sermon in a church. Uh, pray for Ed Ollie that uh, God opens his eyes to his lack of excellence. I mean, that's like putting it kindly uh, when it comes to preaching God's word. Oh, man, he made it all about himself. The, the scriptures are about Jesus and what he's done for us. The good news of Christ dying on the cross for our sins. I mean, the the Old Testament is teeming with and really focused in on Jesus. Read Jesus's Road to Emmaus story, you know, the day of the resurrection. He opens up the scriptures and shows them about all the things that are written about him. It's about him and what he's doing, what he's done for us. And Ed Ollie, apparently he's come to save the world from mediocrity. Different Jesus, different gospel. And that Jesus and that gospel are not capable of saving you from what your real problem is. Slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Pray that God opens that all these eyes. Man, wow. 
Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. Uh, you can support us financially. Visit our website, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons, and thank you for supporting us during the lean summer months. <sighs> I think I'm going to go back to bed. I feel illness coming back. I, I should be losing my voice by now. <sighs> Maybe my head cold needs to come back. I, I just want to go and... Uh, I I got to get my mind off of this one. Wow. What do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. Uh, you can email me. Uh, email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until uh, tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Mediocrity is like the least of your worries. Trust me. You got bigger things to worry about. Till tomorrow, amen. Amen.